Hello, I'm Jamie Goldstein from Pillar VC, and welcome to Build with the Best. It's our chance to connect with the smartest minds in the blockchain, crypto, Web3 world, and get their perspective on building real, useful applications on Web3. What's the good, what's the bad, and what's the ugly of the state of the art as it exists here in the winter of 2022? We hope that whether you're an experienced crypto developer or just crypto curious, you'll learn from these discussions. We certainly do. Jamie Goldstein and his guest are not registered investment advisors. All opinions are Jamie's and his guests alone. Nothing discussed today is investment advice, and it should not be relied upon for investment decisions. So today's guest is Sean Neville. Sean, thanks for joining us. He's the co-founder of Circle and the Center Consortium. And, uh, and we're really lucky to have him here with us today. So, Sean, if you'd be willing, please tell us a little bit about your life story, where you grew up, what you did in your career, and how do you ended up in the crypto world? Yeah, thanks, Jamie. It's uh, fun to put some of the conversations that you and I have been having on, on video. So we'll see how this goes. Um, yeah, as, as you mentioned, uh, I co-founded a, a company called Circle uh, back in 2013, uh, my background is in engineering, so winding backwards before 2013, um, built a lot of products and, uh, you know, wrote languages, frameworks, server stuff, mobile stuff, I guess in what you would consider even the web one period, web two, right. uh, you know, however, we're breaking down this nomenclature. So um, um, maybe I'm the, the enemy or the, you know, the uh, evolver rather than the revolutionizer, I don't know, but Built a bunch of stuff for companies like Adobe, where I was a principal scientist, and um, before that, Macromedia and uh, Alaire in the early days of the internet. Right, Alaire. Um, Alaire, for those that don't know, was like the original website building company. Yeah, I mean, it was uh, JJ Alaire and Jeremy Alaire and, and several others involved at that time. Uh, we're working on a. We were working on products that allowed um, you know people who weren't engineers to get information out of a database and into a web page, which seems really right. simple now. But this is you know before there was PHP or or you know certainly anything like the frameworks we have now. So Cold Fusion was an early product in that space. So, um, and uh, you know before that, I, I, uh, I I'm outside. Of, I live outside of Boston now, but I I was in New York, which is where I founded my first company, which is actually how I came to know uh, the Alaires. And, uh, but kind of grew up as a gypsy. I grew up in the South and, and, uh, outside of Savannah and lived in Texas for a while. And, you know, I've been all over the place. So, but, uh, mm -hmm. but we, you know, now we've been in the Boston area, I guess, longer than I've ever lived anywhere. Um, yep. it's a fully decentralized world, of course. So, uh, even during, maybe even during more during pandemic times when there's been less travel, it's very broadly distributed. Yeah. Gotcha. So tell us a little bit about Circle and how, how you got involved there. Jeremy and I both, uh, Jeremy Alaire, my co-founder, and I both um, got uh, pretty obsessive and started to go down the crypto rabbit hole at the same time around 2011, 2012, something like that. And um, But maybe for different reasons, uh, I was really interested in um, you know, what really is information and what is value in the form of information and uh, how is information persisted and shared and transmitted and what are the economic and political ramifications of how those things are shared? You know, that's those sort of models, which I had been these working are, with. These are, these are big thoughts. This is, this big is thoughts. right. You know, and, and uh, so I was really interested in that space as an evolution of some of the things I've been doing 
earlier in my career, uh, as was Jeremy. And so we got excited about uh, doing something in the space that that initially just simply made finance work a little bit more like we had wanted the open internet to work for content. Um, and, you know, that means removing uh, middlemen that take taxes on just transferring data, which is all money really is now, um, but also evolving right. into creating smarter forms of more inclusive, um, you know, financial products, um, uh, global sort of borderless financial products that that ran on executable code uh, as law, uh, as opposed to, you know, complicated English contracts interpreted by fallible humans. <laughs> right, right. Which, which today, I think, is still a, a massive idea and a novel idea. But for you guys to be thinking about this in the 2011 to 13 timeframe is really uh, very uh, forward looking. Well, I think the vision that we've had has remained uh, the same really through these past, you know, nine years now since we, you know, have been working on this stuff. But but certainly we've taken a lot of different twists and turns to try to realize that vision. Um, you know, we started off with uh, effectively a consumer-oriented payments app that allowed people to acquire crypto such as Bitcoin really easily and allowed right. people to send and receive money pretty yep. quickly realized, you know, we needed something like a stable coin in order for that really to function, which is what led us to create USDC, um, which we did in 2018 and founded the Center Consortium uh, with Coinbase. And, um, you know, we've taken some other twists and turns during the course of the company's trajectory, but USDC is is you know, obviously been in a, a great position and has been really effective from DeFi and NFTs as well as, uh, you know, things like payment use cases. So, so the company has um, has taken some twists and turns, but I would say, you know, the time that Jeremy and I first started talking about this over a kitchen table um, back in 20, I don't know, 2012, 2013, it's pretty much the same vision that we outlined at the time. Yeah, amazing. And and USDC now, I think, just passed 50 billion in market capitalization, one of the top handful of cryptocurrencies now. So that's been a, a huge success. Fantastic. So so tell us where where do you think we are in Web three adoption now? Like where are you seeing traction in it, and and is it mainstream or is it on the verge of mainstream? How do how would you characterize it? Yeah, I'm not sure even what Web three really means exactly. I, I know it's a handy way to refer to a lot of different technologies, yeah. um, but um, you know, I guess maybe first I'd say the things that are important to me about this new, more broadly distributed. Uh, hybrid decentralized sort of model of building things right is that that it's useful when people um you know people need greater control over their own data um and uh transparency of how that data is used and and then um, be able to align incentives um in terms of governance and economic incentives so that they have some influence on decisions for how those things may change over time. So, mm -hmm. you know, greater control over our own data, um, transparency into the computations that occur on that data and how, how it yeah. may be executed, you know, used within applications. Yeah. And then a stake in the success and a say in the governance of the evolution. And so when those things, um, are useful, then um, some of these technologies that we're, we're including under the umbrella of Web3 become pretty attractive. And it turns out that a lot of the internet applications yep. uh, become more valuable when those things are, are woven in. Yeah. And do you think that's, so there's sort of two dimensions like I want to explore with you there. One is, do you think those characteristics apply to lots of problems 
or a subset of problems, meaning, you know, control of your data and, and participation and, and things like that, transparency. And all and then on the other dimension, do most people care about those kinds of things? Or is that or is there a subset of people that are particularly drawn to that? I think it's a it turns out to be a quite a large number of uh, applications and use cases that benefit from those things. The surfacing of the value in terms of user experiences in particular use cases obviously varies. But, um, you know, if you ask someone something about, you know, do they care about custodying their own private data? That sounds pretty abstract. Um, right. But if you can make it a little more specific about control over your own identity and how it's used in, say, social networks um, and uh, transparency over how it might be uh, traded, do you have control over how your identity data is being offered to advertisers or, or, or do right. you relegate that decision to a large platform holder? People care about those things. Yeah. You're hearing it more and more on the radio. There's these ads now where they talk about, you know, they did one search for something on the internet and forever they're just getting bombarded with advertisements for that. Uh, a classic example of, of not being able to control your data. Okay. So let's explore. Oh, go ahead, please. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, the decentralization question is is uh, is one I know that we as technologists and engineers really care a lot about because we're attempting, we see that as partly as a solution and we need to do better about decentralizing some of these things that have become, you know, power likes to consolidate and likes to centralize. Yeah. But I think for, for a lot of people using the applications, um, there uh, there's the question of how decentralized different components of the architecture need to be for them to benefit. So if I care yes. about controlling my own data and having some visibility into, um, you know, how that data is used and some governance say, what exactly what elements is need, do I need to have under my control to be decentralized um, versus, uh, you know, what might be a more hybrid sort of web two-ish, web three-ish middle ground where there are some central uh, access points, but yeah. not everything is centralized. You know, what does that look like? And I think that's this, that, those sort of hybrid models without... Without imagining a clean flip between this was Web 2 and this is Web 3, more of a, you know, combination where some central services do use, it's in their best interest to use decentralized uh, technologies and individuals are able to use to decentralized technologies, but also not, um, you know, not lose the advantages of high speed, low latency, uh, you know, sort yep. of access points that might be might be centralized. And what does that model look like, especially in the near term before we get to anything like a fully decentralized um, yeah. in a space? So let's come back to that. Uh, and, and maybe we'll talk about an example first, and then we'll circle back to that interesting question of how much decentralization is important to, to yield the benefits you're describing. So uh, I'd love to talk to you about a, a marketplace business. You know, there's lots of marketplace businesses on uh, on crypto and blockchain, but but this one a different kind of marketplace. Uh, Uber is a marketplace matching drivers and riders, and so um, I'd just love to get your perspective. Do you think something like Uber should be recreated in the Web three world? I would look at some of the advantages to decentralizing elements of a multi sided marketplace like Uber. Um, and uh, and see where where it might make sense to tap into um, you know certain components of this thing that we're we're calling Web three, yep. and where it might yep. not make sense. Um, you know, one is uh, one way to approach it is just from the user experience perspective. It's if it's late at night and uh, and I just really need a ride. Um, I, how much do I care about um, you know 
right. custody of certain things versus just availability of drivers. And so, yes, you know, but when it comes to bootstrapping a new multi-seated marketplace, things like um, econ- economic incentives and, um, you know, aligning incentives between um, supply side and demand side or mm-hmm. drivers and riders um, with the platform owners, um, there are elements of Web3 that can help bootstrap those things um, to pull them together um, so that uh, so that there is a healthy marketplace, and then there there is uh, control of data in the sense of how much data am I surrendering in order to participate in this marketplace, and what decisions mm-hmm. am I able to make in, in order to engage? And those things I think surface in a user experience that can be differentiated from a classic, fully siloed, centralized you know model for these kinds of applications. So I think that there is some value. You know, I don't know if this is the first use case I would pick. Yeah, uh, and obviously it's not the first use case that has been chosen relative sure. to financial instruments and things. But but I right. think it is an interesting one, and there are elements of it that without ne- needing to make it fully decentralized, like a giant dex of uh, you know riders and, and drivers, there yep. are elements of decentralization that are helpful for everyone participating. So say a bit more about how those economics could work in the bootstrapping of the network. I, uh, I imagine you're referencing a token. So, so how, how would that benefit the users and the, and the bootstrapping of such, such a system? It could, it could be a token. Um, but I think generally the, um, you know, the idea between behind some of the, um, uh, not the idea, maybe the unfortunate downside at times of some gig economy type marketplaces is that, um, under the the sort of rubric of giving people freedom to work when they want to work, they're actually working more for less money, and they don't really mm-hmm. have a say in the you know how the platform is evolved over time. And um, and there's also disintermediation concerns from the platform holders. Um, there's there's you know slightly misaligned incentives. So if you could come up with some sort of economic, could be based on a token, but some sort of you know yep. reward type economic model that allowed drivers to participate in the governance of the platform, riders to be rewarded um, with those kinds of tokens or governance you know, uh, capabilities, whether it's wrapped in a token or otherwise, um, and economic incentives in terms of a combination of governance sort of reward you know, tokens or something, the more they use the platform, then you kind of get into this model where the platform holders grow the value of the platform as drivers are increasing their say in governance and riders right. are increasing their own value by participating in it. And you right. can do versions of those things indirectly in the centralized version, but it involves, you know, riders and drivers buying shares of stock in a, in a company yes. and participating in a different kind of governance. And, uh, right. um, you know, so. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. And I mean, the way I, the way, I, uh, to think about it, I think is, uh, you know, the real Uber, I can't remember what it's worth now, 60, 80 billion dollars, but that value largely went to the founders of the company and the venture capitalists that backed it. And now maybe the public uh, public investors in a web three version, in theory, a lot of that value would uh, would be earned by the drivers and the riders. And uh, and they are they are owners uh, and governors of the network. Yeah, I, I think you know some of the criticisms against the Web three um, movement on the economic side is that there are there are a lot of people trying to make a lot of money, uh, you know, really quickly. But it it sort of glosses over the fact that earlier versions of the web had a lot of people trying to make a lot of money. It was just it was more siloed, and yes. uh, it was a sort of select group of people. There is this notion that 
you know, early ver- early days of the web or even the web two type stuff was all about building things. And there's this idealism around building great things, which is in some ways really true, but um, downplays the idea that people were also trying to generate a great deal of value for themselves as if that's a thing that uh, they don't like to like to bring up. Web three also has value generated for people and it's just, it's much more broadly distributed. Yes, indeed. Indeed. So, um, so there's also, you know, aspects, if you could imagine a web three version of Uber that might, uh, be different or more transparent. You referenced transparency earlier. Uh, I, I always find it puzzling when I'm standing next to someone else on the street and we're trying to hail an Uber to go back to the office or go back somewhere else. And we both get different prices on our phones as to what the ride is going to cost us. Why that is happening, I have no idea, but perhaps uh, more transparency would happen through a Web3 version. It's it's certainly possible, and there you know varying degrees of transparency depending on de- de- you know depending on how deeply you want to dig. But fundamentally, um, you know, before we had uh, access to these kinds of robust uh, technologies like blockchains and, and um, you know decentralized tech in general, based on crypto, there's there's really only one way to build a web app, and it didn't really matter if you were building a social network or a healthcare system or you know whatever you were building. There was some sort of client sitting in a web browser or on a phone, and it just sent, you know, messages back and forth to servers, um, API endpoints that initially yep. were built to send and retrieve documents, but we sort of, you know, overloaded that to send other kinds of content. But it was just basically sending content. So whatever was happening behind that server endpoint, right? You know, storage of the data and the computation on the data, there was no transparency yep. uh, to that, yeah. and there was certainly no ability to, to custody of that now. If you take it to the extreme other side of the spectrum, you kind of end up back in the early web one days where everybody was meant to run a, you know, SMTP server to get email functioning. And that's not going to happen. You know, companies don't even want to run their own servers. They have cloud businesses, but, but there, um, there does need to be transparency into computation and some degree of personal storage. Doesn't need to be uh, storing everything. There's, There's a model of personal storage, personal custody, transparency into the computation public storage and then there's also still some privatized uh, storage yeah. that, that is so this is it's a mix it's not really either or but all of those things can contribute to a greater de- degree of transparency when you're a user or a developer or uh, you know participant in a tech platform uh, like in this this uber example right so so let's suspend disbelief for a minute because I hear you loud and clear maybe not the best use case to go after in the early days but let's pretend we decided, this was something that we felt was worth building. How would you go about building it? Like, what are the major pieces that that a developer would need to think about? I, th- I think some of the user experience, um, the vetting of the user experience and testing out of the opportunity are really the same when it comes to uh, tapping into the both sides of the marketplace. Yep. Um, you know, you test a product with drivers and you test a product with riders and uh, start small and, um, you know, uh, narrow the number of things that you're testing in the experience and, uh, and right. we go from there. The, the challenge yeah. with a lot of this is, um, not so much the protocol challenges or infrastructure challenges, although those are real challenges. This is still early yeah. days is, you know, we've yep. taken significant steps in the infrastructure, but, but we're not there yet. But, you know, if you're building a user experience for centralized apps, in some ways it's just simpler. You, you deal with, um, communicating latency 
in this network transmission stuff that's happening and you deal with error conditions. Um, but you don't have to deal with risk decisions for the most part. Those are delegated to whoever's managing the computation and you don't have to deal with self storage other than yep. things like cookie alerts and things like that. Yep. Yep. And in these, in this kind of world, you've got to think about how to test out a user experience that allows people to understand risk decisions that are more complicated and, and allows people to understand custody decisions, even if it's a simple wallet type key management, uh, occasionally signing things, custody experience. Yep. That is a, that's a hurdle past what the typical, you know, non, non-crypto, maybe non-NFT today user right. is comfortable right. with. So I think you'd start there. You'd test, you'd test out product um, and, uh, and market um, and, uh, and yep. start relatively small and iterate. Okay. So you're, so testing the, the user interface for drivers and riders, sort of not that different than what you might do in a, in a classic web two version, but the, but in terms of actually building this, could you build a completely decentralized Uber? given the state of the art today, or do you think there are portions that practically speaking are going to be centralized? If you, so my answer today is probably be different than it, than it will be in a year or so. Yep. Um, but today um, I do think the user experience ends up slightly changed because there does need to be, uh, you know, whether you're dealing with management of identity data or keys or, or whatever in a decentralized yep. space, you are dealing with some form. You could call it a wallet, but it's whatever that next user experience is for sure. this this kind of app. So I do think it ends up being uh, that's a significant challenge, and it is a little bit of a different exercise in this. If if but for some of the other pieces, um, I think today you would probably find things like execution of smart contracts is is centralized for the most part. Um, you know, and for example, in the Solidity space, uh, I don't know what the percentage is, but I'm guessing the vast majority of smart contract execution occurs through Infura, which is a, which is a, a great service, but it is a, a gateway service. It's yes, not like people right. are running their own, their own, you know, client side nodes um, for the most part. So um, you probably have, you know, the Infuras, um, the pockets, the you know, those those sorts of uh, alchemy, those sorts of services. Yep. You could call those effectively centralized and they're gateways into decentralized um, compute and store. So, you know, the blockchain space, um, they may also be gateways into some centralized services. So and you could have, of course, centralized services that have their own nodes and their access, their own gateways to access the public store. So I think it's a it's a hybrid. It's not fully decentralized. Um, it's also not fully centralized. It's a it's a hybrid space. You wouldn't want to overload a blockchain by pretending it's a giant database. It's it's not. Yes. You know, uh, it's it's not a NoSQL server or Oracle Parallel yeah. server or something. So right. it's got specific uses that are very beneficial when it comes to ensuring, um, you know, transparency and, and control and uh, you know those sorts of things. And and um, so I would imagine if I was going to go build the mid tier ish kind of you know notion of this app, yep. it would yep. be a hybrid. Uh, it would be a hybrid situation, but that still leaves the users in complete control of their own data. Um, and and how they use the platform yeah and so but a year from now you think maybe it's different so uh, does uh, alchemy or infura do you think those get pushed all the way to the client i think there's always this, uh going to be i shouldn't say always uh but within a year in this time frame uh i think there will still be a need um for the convenience and sort of high latency access to some of these services i don't foresee yeah. a world where we're all in a year, we're all running 
um, you know, the equivalent of SMTP servers in our basement. Um, right, you know, or right. Eventually, we may get with with certain L1s and, and L2s, we may have, you know, the idea, which we've always, we've talked about for the last 10 years, the idea of a light node or a light client um, that, that has uh, a little more functionality, which I, I view as part of this user experience um, problem to solve. But um, there, there are advancements, of course, that are happening in chains, uh, L1s and L2s, and now people are even talking about the infrastructure layer below a lot of L1s. So I, uh, I've heard those yeah. called L0s, so yeah. whatever. The nom yeah. This nomenclature is always makes me chuckle a little bit, um, kind of like the Web3 notion. But right. um, there are significant advancements in those. And um, and I do expect that over time, we'll, we'll see greater functionality um, that enables better user experiences that eliminates the need for some of these today, what are today central gateway, uh, sort of bottlenecks. Yeah. Interesting. Um, so, so a lot of the popular applications that are gaining traction now are, are at least partially centralized. And, and so of the three things you highlighted earlier, it was sort of the ownership, the transparency and the and the ownership of their own data, control of their own data, are any of those compromised by the fact that it's centralized? Or how how are people yeah. being comfortable that in this decentralized world, actually major pieces of it are still centralized? Yeah, I think uh, a thought exercise that's helpful is to think of um, to think of the old architecture. You know, the wet a giant social network built on um, you know Web two ish architecture. Um, mm -hmm. What would, what would it be like if you could not only just import all your personal data and your photos and your, your social network friend contacts and so on, but you could also export those at any time and, and fully expunge those at any time. And, um, you know, if you could do that, how would that really function? With Web2 architecture, you would have to trust the platform owner, the, the people who control that to yep. be able to enable that functionality for you. You have no, I mean, we have no idea what's really in right you know, a Cassandra database sitting uh, in a cloud somewhere. Right. Um, so we can't verify it. Or if we're not directly capable of verifying it or don't care to, we're also not able to ask people that we trust to verify it for us. Right. Uh, we can only trust that platform owner. So um, so where the, you know, the decentralization comes into play is that we don't necessarily need to trust anybody to make sure that, our data is exportable from those kinds of functions. Right. We control it um, ourselves. And, and the, just the the ongoing question is kind of circles back to the beginning. The question is, how much do I need to directly control or have access to in a decentralized fashion for those things to be true? Um, and then there's the governance case of if the those who own the platform have incentives that align uh, in a way for shareholder growth that are different from my incentives as a user, uh, or a participant in the platform, right. how do I make my uh, how do I make my own vote known uh, directly, and how do I have a direct stake in the uh, the outcome of the vote that I make? Right. Um, and it's easier to see how those things work in a more decentralized fashion. Yeah, fantastic! Really good discussion. Thank you. Um, a question for you. Uh, for for the listeners out there, what is your? Do you have a favorite project? A Web three. I know you don't love the word Web three, but a crypto project that you think is under the radar uh, that that nobody's heard of yet. 
There are a number. I mean, you can tell by some of the discussion that we're having back and forth. I'm, I've become increasingly focused on the user experience uh, side of things. So, yep. uh, you know, spent the last year or so, although I'm still obviously heavily involved with Circle, um, I also incubate um, projects and do some investing. And, and a lot of that over the last year has really been focused on the protocol side of things. Um, yep. Did, you know, significant project in the identity space. Um, and, and there's a, there's a, throughout the course of my career, I, I'm the pendulum swinging. Once I do that for a while, I swing back toward, uh, you know, wanting to work on things that millions of people can use directly, um, who yes. aren't necessarily experts. And it sort of feels like we've yeah. built some train tracks effectively, and we really need the right trains to run on those tracks. Um, yes. and so I'm interested in those, those sorts of projects. Now there's tons of wallet like experiences out there. Um, there's some, you know, future browser sort of, uh, products, uh, projects out there that are interesting. Um, so I don't want to call out any, any particular one necessarily, sure. but I sure. think that space in general is, is, uh, is, is super interesting. People who are doing things, uh, like, um, helping me control attestations and data related to my identity and allow yeah. me to have, uh, you know, better control over my engagement yeah. with, with, uh, you know, NFT marketplaces while also exchanging value and the, even the future of the future of, uh, payment apps. You know, if I want to send you money, that seems like a thing that would be solved by now that would be completely free and instant and so yeah. on and so forth. Yeah. Uh, how does that experience fold in? So, um, this, this area is one that is of, uh, a lot of interest to me at the moment. Yeah. Fantastic. Sean, always great to get your comments. Thanks so much for joining us today. And uh, good luck with, with what you're working on next. Thanks so much. Yeah, thanks. It was a pleasure.